Good morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We'll be in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And our text today will be verses 9 through 13. And while you're turning that, I'll just echo what uh, Todd mentioned. We had just a wonderful time. I am trusting the Lord that he will bring much fruit from our time together as elders. Uh, Meeting this last uh, couple of days was a lot of meeting, a lot of praying, a lot of talking. Uh, a lot of dreaming together and thinking about what God might have for this church, and uh, good things came from it, I believe. I really believe that. You know, one thing we ought to be very thankful for, I am very thankful for it, I hope you are, the Lord has really blessed this church with good elders. And uh, I saw that again yesterday on display uh, and, and Friday night as we talked and prayed and thought and uh, trusted the Lord to guide All right, so our text, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9, says this. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray again. Father, we come to you today needy, and what we need is your word. Oh Lord, I pray that this word that you have for us today would stoke the fire of our amazement for you, in you, today. And I pray that none of us would be dull this morning in hearing. None of us would be blind to wonderful, glorious truths. That you would not allow us to to be taken with small things and not see the greatest thing. Oh Lord, I pray that you would work. I pray that your spirit would work here among us this morning. That you would encourage, that you would uplift, that you would strengthen that you would bring new life, the miracle of new birth, Lord. It is a miracle. Every time someone sees and believes, it is a miracle. And we see new birth. And Lord, I pray that there be new birth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we were in our worship planning meeting this week, That's something the pastors do. We meet every Wednesday. We meet together every Wednesday, and we pray, and we discuss, and we plan this gathering. We have been doing that since I arrived, and and I think it's it's helpful for us. Um, At that point, it was still early in the process, but I I read through this passage with the other pastors, and I shared kind of the way that I thought God was leading uh, for the direction of the sermon. And Pastor Thomas, after I did my part, responded by saying that he thought it was amazing. That he thought it was amazing. It was God's amazing providence that we are studying this passage on this particular Sunday. He thought it was amazing. And that word stuck in my brain. Amazing. This sermon is essentially about rising levels of amazement. 
That's not to say that you'll be amazed. I don't know that. Maybe you won't be. I hope you will be, though. Not amazed at me, of course, but amazed at what we will see in this passage. I believe that there are amazing, wonderful things for us to see and believe and trust in these verses. So much so that I'm prepared, totally prepared, to way overuse the word amazing today. My plan is to walk us through four rising levels of amazement. Now, the first two, just to put my cards on the table, the first two levels of amazement have some connection to this passage, though they do not spring up from it. But I'm hoping that they will help us ponder the truth here, especially in verses 12 and 13. And, and those are my introductions, so I think it's okay that I do that. The other two levels of amazement we will see clearly from this passage. And I pray, and I've prayed all week, that we will be taken with wonder of God's amazing grace that's here for us to see, and that that amazement will help us. It will actually help us. It will prod us to put our confidence in God through Jesus Christ. It will encourage us to set our resolve to follow Him. Help us to trust, even in the difficult and unknown circumstances, in the wonderful, amazing grace of God in Christ. God gave us the right to be children of God. So here we go, level one, amazement. One of my first real experiences of amazement that I can remember in my adult life happened on September 2nd, 2002. I know that that's surprising to you that I was an adult in 2002, but I was. It was in a hospital in Ulanude, Siberia. It was the first time I had ever witnessed a childbirth. The first time I held in my hands my very own child. I was speechless. I didn't know how to, how to feel. I didn't know what to think. I'm just in Siberia, didn't speak Russian, holding my baby. I saw a child born into the world, and I knew this was my son, my son. I knew that he would look like his parents one day. I mean, just holding him and thinking, man, I don't know what he's going to look like, but he's going to look like one of his parents. Very thankfully, I married a woman with dominant genes, so this son of mine and all subsequent children would look like their mother. They're very thankful for that reality. But this child would still inherit traits from me. It came from me, and he came from his mother. Isn't that amazing? The whole process was amazing to me. I was amazed at that moment that, that my wife, I, the whole process, when, when my wife Maya came to me and said, you know what, we're expecting. I was amazed. Like, what, I'm going to be a dad? And then the process went at every turn, every new development. Every time my wife would, she wanted something pickled with vinegar. I was amazed. And then the ultrasound. Now, ultrasound technology, then in Siberia at least, was less amazing, less, far less amazing than the tech is now in America. I, I do remember being less than filled with wonder during that ultrasound when the tech was pointing to a black and white image and said, hey, this is your son. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I think I see something there. You, I think you just need a degree in science to read those ultrasounds. Now, of course, the tech is truly amazing, right? 
When we, when we went in for an ultrasound for our youngest, who's now 10, this week 10, when we went there, we, we, it was 3D. I could see her nose and her hands and her face in the womb. It's amazing. Human birth is amazing. But friends, the things that I described are not the most amazing things about human birth. In fact, all those realities, everything I just said, more or less, can be said about animals. It's probably amazing to see a puppy born. And I know that a puppy, a puppy will inherit traits from both his mother and his father. I have a dog. His name is Spurgeon. He's this big. His dad is a mastiff, and his mom is an Australian shepherd. And so I think this inheriting traits from the mother thing just runs in the family because he's small, not like a mastiff. But if you had money to burn, if you had money to burn, you could take a pregnant dog in for an ultrasound, right? And you could see his snout and his ears, and it might look cute to you. You might even be able to do that with 3D imaging tech. I don't know if anyone does that. I hope not, but maybe somebody does. So all of that is level one amazing when I talk about the birth of my child. Level one, amazing. There's something far more amazing about human, human conception, human birth, that none of the animals share. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let us let us let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps upon earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. That's next level amazement, friends. That's level two. We are made in the image of God. That makes everything, that makes everything about human life especially meaningful. It makes human life sacred. From conception to death, human life is sacred. When I saw the ultrasound of my tiny unborn daughter 10 years ago, I was viewing a person in the womb who was made in the image of God. It's amazing. You and I, made in the image of God. Every baby that is conceived is made in the image of God. Now, of course, not everyone finds that amazing. Not everyone finds that amazing. The reason why, why we have a Sunday each year on which we recognize the sanctity of human life is because not everyone finds that amazing. Many, perhaps most, have their senses dulled to this amazement because of sin or unbelief or fallenness or because they have believed untrue things about unborn life that our society has told them. They do not see human life from conception onward as sacred, as amazing, as worthy of protection, as worthy of dignity. Oh, friends, I pray that your senses are not dulled I pray that when you see life, when you see life, you see life. You see with awestruck wonder the reality that God has made man in his own image. 
When you hold a newborn baby, when you adopt a child who needs parents, when you see an old man nearing the end, your heart ought to take in the wonder of life. You are seeing image bearers, people made in the image of God. I want to encourage you on this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday to not be dull in your senses. God has done this miracle and we should do whatever we can, whatever we can as a church, whatever we can as individuals to stoke the fire of wonder in hearts of men and women, expectant mothers, frightened teenage women in crisis pregnancies. We should do whatever we can to help them see. We should help them see beyond the fears of their situation, help them see life made in the image of God. It is amazing, though not everyone believes that, but it is true, and we should leverage our resources in love, in love, to help people see and be amazed. So that's my intro. I shared two levels of amazement to set this up. The birth of a child and the reality that every child is made in the image of God. Now we should examine our passage. Again, I think you will agree with me by the time we're done that those two first levels of amazement fit. Just have to keep tracking When we get to verses 9 and 10 of our text, we are amazed in a different way altogether. So all of the amazement I've talked about so far has been good. We get to verses 9 and 10 and our amazement is sad. There is amazing unbelief in this passage. John makes clear several reasons why this unbelief is amazing. All the reasons why people should believe in Jesus, but yet don't. Verse 9 calls Jesus the true light that was coming into the world. He is the light that gives light to everyone. That is, there's no seeing outside of Christ. If someone is to see, it's by the light of Christ that they will see. All who see, see in Christ. If you're stuck in a dark cave and you see a light, you see a candle burning, that's true light. If you are to see, you'll need to go and be by that light, right? You see that light, you need to be by that light, or you stay in darkness. That's a no-brainer, right? It wouldn't be amazing, it wouldn't be amazing to believe light in a dark cave. What would be amazing is to not believe light in a dark cave that's shining. To not want to walk in that light, to not want to see by that light, To prefer the darkness, to prefer the darkness where you will stumble and fall for lack of light. That would be amazing. That would be amazing unbelief. And John gives more reasons for why this unbelief is amazing. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The one through whom all things were made came to us, walked among us, did signs and wonders to show who he is. And yet the world did not recognize him. They did not know him. Of course, world means the greater society, more or less. All the world. So maybe you would think that doesn't seem very amazing, Mike, that the world didn't know him. People from backgrounds distant from the revelation and from the promises of God's people, Israel. Perhaps it makes sense. It makes sense that they were dull of hearing, dull of seeing, Even though 
The one who created them was in the world. Now, I could argue theologically that it's still amazing that they didn't believe, but you might think, well, the world doesn't know God. But look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not believe him. Now, there are two ways that people understand that, specifically how they understand who the, his own are in that verse. One is to see this as another way of saying the world, right? Like, especially since he just said the world was made through him. So he made the world, he owns the world, he came to his own, and his own did not know him. So some people believe it that way. I don't think that, I think it's possible, but I don't think that's what the Gospel of John means. And that's because of the wider context of the Gospel and how John tries to show us God's saving plans that go beyond the Jews to the nations. That's what he does in this Gospel. And I think his own means his own nation, Israel, the Jews, the Jewish people. Verses 9 and 10 are really broad. And then he moves to the specific. He starts with the broad, and he moves into the specific. Jesus is the true light. Everyone who sees, sees because of him. Big, general. He came to the world that he created, and his, the world did not know him. Big, general, and specific. Jesus came to his chosen nation. Israel, a people who were massively blessed and privileged when it comes to the promises and the self-revelation of God through the patriarchs and through the prophets. He came to a people who knew the lingo, a people who had walked out of slavery and walked through the Red Sea, a people who ate manna in the wilderness, bread sent from God every morning, a people who were waiting for the Christ. Parents told children at the dinner table, you know, life is hard. Life is hard, but you know what? Don't lose hope. One day God will send his promised one. One day the Redeemer will come. We have hope. The Messiah will come. Jesus came to a people who were expecting him. He came to his own, but they did not receive him. That's amazing. Tragic and amazing. And John is starting this gospel with this passage to prepare us with, for the gobsmacking unbelief we're going to see in this book. It's on every page. I've been reading the gospel of John to my family after breakfast. That's what we've been doing for our family devos. We just read a couple of paragraphs every morning, share observation, and then we pray together. That's how we do it. I'm loving it. One thing... My daughter picked, on, picked up on is that near, after nearly every passage, I do the reading, I read the passage, and nearly after every passage I read, I say the word, and I think I say it involuntary, involuntarily, I say, wow. After every passage, I read it, and then wow. When, one, one, one day I didn't say it, and she's like, did you not find this amazing? <laughs> there are a ton of wow moments in the Gospel of John. Almost on every page. Sadly, most of the wows come because of amazing unbelief. We recently read chapter 11. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead after four days cold in the grave, in the tomb. Jesus comes along. He's dead. 
His family said, he says, roll away from the stone. No, I don't want to do that, they said, because he's going to stink. He's been dead so long. But Jesus comes and he says, roll it away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man comes fully alive and walks out. That's a wow moment, right? Wow. Like the most wow moment ever, almost. Yet the religious leaders are so dull of hearing, so blind and so staunch in their unbelief that they say things like, guys, if we let this continue, everybody's going to believe in Jesus. Like if we let this thing, you know, him raising people from the dead continue, everybody's going to follow him. And then in chapter 12, they even resolve, I mean, it's comical, they even resolve to kill Lazarus again. Like maybe it would be better if he'd be dead again. Since he's the reason, him being alive, again, from the dead, is the reason why everyone is believing. So in, they were so set in their unbelief that their ridiculous conclusion was that they needed to kill Lazarus. Wow. It's amazing. Unbelief. Jesus raised a man from the dead. He did this among his own people, telling them who he is. And his own people did not receive him. It's a massive theme in the Gospel of John. People are rejecting Jesus left and right. He heals a leper, unbelief. He makes a blind man see, unbelief. He raises a man from the dead, unbelief. He dies publicly on a cross. Is buried. And three days later, Rises from the grave. Unbelief. Maybe that's where you are today. I hope not. You see, all of this is written. All of those gobsmacking, amazing moments of unbelief, wow moments of unbelief, all of those are written so that you might not follow them in unbelief. So that we might not See what we see and meet it with unbelief. That their dullness and blindness not dull your senses to light. You are meant, I believe, to be amazed at their unbelief so that you might not reject Jesus Christ. And that is so that you might experience an even greater level of amazement Amazement level four from this passage. And it is God's amazing grace. A human birth is amazing. It's level one. Humans are made in the image of God. It's amazing. Amazement level two. That people can see the light of the one who created the world, gives light to everyone, and comes to his own, and still reject him. Level three. And it is amazing when Christ is received, when we believe in his name, he gives us the right to become children of God. Wow. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Most in the world reject Christ. 
Most of his own people rejected and continued to reject him. But of course, not everyone rejects him. Not everyone of his own rejected him. Not everyone rejects him. Some believe, and it's another theme in the Gospel of John. Most reject, but some, by God's grace, believe. And what is amazing in this passage is the grace of God towards all who receive him, all who believe in his name. They are given the right to become the children of God. That is amazing grace. We sometimes say that we are all God's children. We sometimes talk as if every human being is a child of God. And there is a sense in which that's true. There is a sense in which that's true. As I mentioned earlier, we are all made in the image of God. Every person on the planet, an image bearer of God. Every person. Every person. No matter how small, an image bearer. Every person alive is 100% existentially dependent upon God for their being. So if that's what's meant when someone says we're all God's children, then I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm in agreement. There is a sobering movie released last year called God's Children Are Not For Sale which exposes human trafficking. And I think it's right to say it like that. God's children, not for sale. We should protect children. And we should do that first and foremost because they are God's children. Every child in the womb is a child of God in a sense. And that's the biggest reason why I think we should be passionate about the cause of life. That's why we should see the dignity of all human life and every person. So I'm with you if that's what you mean when you say we're all God's children. I'm in agreement, but let's note that that's not what John means when he says it here like this. When he uses that phrase here, this is not a universal truth about every person everywhere of all time. Not all people are God's children in the sense John means it in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. God's children, according to these verses, are a very specific group. Who are God's children? All who have received Christ. All those, as he says in a, the same thing in another way, who believe. It's in the present tense in the Greek. So NASB and the King James get it right here. All those who believe in his name. And you could say it the other way around too. According to this, all who have received Christ, all those who believe in, in, the name, in, in his name are God's children. All God's children believe in his name, and all who believe in his name are God's children. It's a major theme in the Gospel of John, as we're going to see. So you want to know, do you want to know if you are God's child? I mean, I just said not everyone is God's child in that sense. So do you want to know if you're God's child or not? There's a paternity test right here, isn't there? Right here in this passage. Are you believing in Christ and in Him alone. If you are trusting in Christ, then you are a child of God. And I hope you find that amazing. A child of God. Verse 13 makes it clear that this is distinct from natural birth. Natural birth works one way. There's blood involved. There's the will of the flesh involved. There's the will of man involved. Those are all connected. They're causal agents to the natural, physical reality of childbirth and pregnancy. 
All those are causes. And amazing as that is, as I described a moment ago, the birth in verse 13 is even more amazing because it has one causal agent. One. The will of God. God, for reasons in himself, because of his love for you, causes you to be born again into his family. Isn't that amazing grace? Life is amazing from conception onward. It's amazing to think that a baby knit together by God in the womb, as Psalm 139 says, is made in the image of God. That when you hold a newborn infant, you hold an image bearer of God. That's a wow moment. Wow. But spiritual birth in Christ through the work of Jesus, through his sinless life and his substitutionary death on the cross and his resurrection causing you who believe to be born again into the family of God given the right to be called the child of God, a child of God, that's another level of wow altogether. And oh, how I pray that your senses are not dulled this morning. I pray that you are not like the world this morning, not even like the majority of his own that he came to but did did not receive him. I pray that you are not dull to the wonder of human life. And I pray that you are not dull to the incredible wonder of the new birth. The amazing grace of God is that in Christ we are the children of God. The masses reject that. The world does not know him. His own did not receive him. But we do. Christ died for you. He took your sin. He paid it on the, in himself on the cross, by his death, and God raised him up on the third day to give new life. If you have truly received him, if you believe in his name, you have been given the right to be called the child of God. Now, you could hear all of that, okay? You could hear all of that. Maybe you've heard that your whole life, and it's not new for you. And you could think that that's all pie-in-the-sky theology with no real-life practical implications. No ways to truly apply this passage beyond the theological notions that I've presented here by simply believing them. So let me take a moment and try to help you see how good this is for you practically, how good this is for your soul, how good this is for your heart. And I'm going to do that, if you don't mind, by going back to that baby I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon a couple of days ago, my wife reminded me of something. One, one day, back when we were living in Siberia in a rented apartment, we got news that we were going to have to move apartments. It's the middle of winter, and we found out that our apartment would no longer be available, and it's hard to find apartments. It was winter, like I said, and I know that it's very hard for you to imagine what a winter is like in Siberia, unless you just walk out to your car today. It was cold, and I had a small baby, and I'm wondering, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? My wife was wondering. I was worried. I think Maya was worried too. Where are we going to live? So we might have been worried, but you know who wasn't worried? You know who wasn't worried? You know, like, serious things are happening, right? Like, I got to figure out where to live, and there's a baby cooing in the crib. Not concerned. Not even a little bit concerned. He's smiling and doing all the things that babies do. 
And you, it was right for him not to be worried. It was right for him not to be worried. And you know why? Because he's my child. Because he's in my care. Because those are my problems, not his problems. You see? See where I'm going with this? We are children of God. What is it that has you concerned this morning? What is it that has you worried and fretful? What is it that makes it hard for you to pray or pay attention to a sermon? A crisis, a health problem, some looming potential problem that you believe is coming? Friends, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. He gave you the right to be that child in Christ. If you're believing in the name of Christ, you've been given the right to become his children. You do not have to worry. You have a father infinitely better than any human father, and he cares for you, and he's good, and he's sovereign. That's practical. He is sovereign over all things in the universe. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and you are his child. Here's another one. I have a pretty good relationship with my son. I've been talking about this whole time. He's, he's going to be here in church next Sunday. He's coming home from college. We have a good relationship. But even if that weren't so... Even if we were, like, even if we butted heads or whatever, had a hard time with each other, you know what? He would still be my son. He's done pretty well, but even if he messed up, he'd be my son. He will never, ever not be my son. It's not dependent on his behavior or his performance. Not even a little bit. My acceptance of my son is not based on how good my son is. You know what it's based on? He's my son. Oh, how secure you are in your father's love. If you are in Christ, you are born again, and you can never, you can never be unborn. You are safe. You are secure. You are safe. In his love forever, you will always, you will always, friend, you will always be his child. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because you are his child. That's practical. In that moment of doubt, when you wonder, does God even care? Friend, he does. When you struggle with sin and you wonder, how could God look at me now with love? Friend, he does. All of this ought to be amazing to you. We are his children. Oh, how I pray that your senses are alive this morning. That you feel and see the wonder of God's amazing grace. That you marvel at God's grace to you in Christ. Let us marvel at life this morning. It's fitting to marvel. It's fitting to marvel. When we see something amazing, our response ought to be marveling. We can marvel this Sunday at the sanctity of human life. It's amazing. 
And even more, way more, we can marvel at the new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Children of God. A right that he has given us in Christ. Marvel with faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that none of us would be dull of hearing this morning. Oh, don't allow any of us to be dull in hearing this morning. Make us alive by faith in you. And cause us to marvel. And Lord, as we go through this week, Lord, the truth there, that you are our Father and we are your child, I pray that that would govern the way that we think about everything, about our problems, about your acceptance of us, about our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.